0: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The State Department argues Keystone XL pipeline or not, dirty tar sands oil will get to market.
1: Oil demand is going to rise by about a third globally, and about well over two-thirds in the developing part of the world. So we're about to see one of the largest booms in oil consumption ever in the coming decades. And Canada has one of the world's largest supplies.
0: Some analysts say it's a simple matter of supply and demand. Also, learning to love and eat the gooey duck, a huge West Coast clam with an unusual appearance.
2: This is going to get a little raunchy. It's a, it's a very phallic
1: looking uh, animal. So what you do is we bring them in and we let them kind of let them relax a little bit, let them go down and get out to its uh, natural length. Those stories and more
3: this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley studios in Boston, this
0: is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The U.S. State Department's latest environmental impact statement brings approval of the controversial Keystone XL pipeline one step closer. President Obama promised to veto the project to bring over 800,000 barrels of tar sands oil every day from Canada to the U.S. Gulf Coast if it would contribute significantly to global warming. Now the State Department's confirmed its finding that the oil will reach markets with or without the pipeline, thus approval would have minimal impact on the climate. Environmental activists vehemently disagree, calling tar sands oil a major threat to climate stability. But Bob McNally, who served as an energy and national security expert in the George W. Bush White House, says the State Department has it right. Bob McNally, welcome to Living on Earth. Good to be with you. Thank you. So there's been so much tension and controversy over this pipeline project. You're an energy analyst. Why do we need this oil up there in the Alberta tar sands?
1: Well, the oil sands in Alberta are the world's third largest source of oil after Venezuela and Saudi Arabia. So this is an enormous amount of oil. And analysts and government officials who have uh, looked at forecasts and generated forecasts predict that oil demand is going to rise by about a third globally and about well over two-thirds in the developing part of the world. So we're about to see one of the largest booms in oil consumption ever in the coming decades. And Canada has one of the world's largest supplies. So it's basic supply and demand. Uh, Those new consumers are going to want to get to that Canadian oil. And one way or the other, analysts agree, and the State Department agrees, that oil is going to get produced and shipped to consumers.
0: So the analysis of the State Department says that the oil coming out of Alberta is about 17% more carbon-intensive than traditional crude oil. What do you think about the Keystone Project's impact on climate change?
1: Well, the State Department also concluded that the oil in Canada will get produced with or without the permit. If the Keystone permit is rejected and the pipeline is not built... The oil sands will come to market via other pipelines in rail, which uh, emit more than the Keystone pipeline would. So that's why I think the State Department concluded, despite the increase in carbon emissions from oil sands relative to conventional oil, that since the oil in the oil sands is going to be consumed in any way, the cleanest way to get it out was to put it through the Keystone pipeline.
0: So you're saying that, say, putting it in trucks or putting it on rail would be 20% more emissions related to this source of crude?
1: Right. The State Department concluded that for other pipelines and rail transport options uh, compared to the Keystone pipeline.
0: How viable are those options, though? We've seen all kinds of problems with trains, a number of deadly derailment accidents, And as far as an alternative pipeline going through British Columbia, there seems to be all kinds of problems there, local politics and uh, and treaty rights with First Nation groups.
1: Well, I think there's no question uh, that in Canada and the United States, we see concern about the costs and risks associated with energy production and transport, and those are going to be addressed. But even taking on board the regulatory changes uh, that will be coming, the view of the State Department and most energy analysts I'm aware of is that at the end of the day, that oil will still flow. Canada is already working on other options, uh, mainly pipelines from the west out to the east to the maritime provinces, possibly pipelines to the west coast and into Asia, and other rail and pipeline options if the Keystone XL pipeline is rejected.
0: Now, some scientists, like former NOAA scientist James Hansen, say that if the carbon in the Alberta tar sands gets into the atmosphere, it's game over for the climate. What would it take for the Alberta tar sands to become the first major fossil fuel reserve in history to be left in the ground?
1: I think um, in order for, to imagine a scenario in which the oil sands in Alberta was not produced in the coming years, I think the most likely scenario would be a global recession and a huge drop in the price of oil below the cost of what it would take to invest in producing Canadian oil. So were we to have a worldwide uh, recession, uh, which would of course create other problems, then I can imagine a delay in investment and uh, both the production and the transport options for that oil. Uh, Second, it's I guess possible that global concern about global warming will rise strongly enough in Canada and other countries to uh, block the uh, production of that resource. But I think that's uh, very unlikely. When I look around the world and look at Europe and look at Australia and look at Japan, I see areas that had been at the forefront of carbon policies and climate change policies pulling back and stepping back as they've encountered economic difficulties not the least of which are high energy prices, particularly in Europe and Japan. So I don't see any sign of the kind of resurgence in concern about global warming that would translate into public policies that would block the oil sands from being developed in the next few years.
0: Now, by your estimates, you say that the world is going to consume a third more oil in the years ahead. What about concerns by those who talk about what's happening with the climate that we really can't afford to do that, and that's the basis of their opposition to Keystone, that we really can't amp up our burning of oil?
1: Right. I, I think you've stated the opposition uh, correctly. Um, the problem is we have a tension here between concerns about the climate implications of burning that much oil. And then, of course, coal and gas will be burned on top of that, on the one hand. And on the other hand, we have to realize that oil is the lifeblood of modern civilization. Uh, So far, a billion people on the earth in the rich countries have dominated oil consumption. And we have forgotten how miraculous and wonderful motorization and getting into cars is. If you think about the 50s and 60s, every movie, cultural hero, and every other rock and roll song was about getting in a car or doing something in a car. And we've kind of forgotten that, but right now what we have to realize is there are two to three billion people who are just starting to appreciate the joys of mobility, of driving, and of flying, and of the other energy services uh, and goods that come from oil. And so... It's this strong desire to have what we have, mainly outside the United States, outside of Canada, in the developing world, which can only be quenched by oil because, whereas in electricity production, uh, there are alternative sources of generating electricity, natural gas, coal, renewables, uh, nuclear. In transportation, we only really have oil. There is no large-scale substitute for oil in transportation.
4: No.
0: You lay out a business and technical rationale for approving Keystone. What about the politics of this? There's been tremendous public opposition, people handcuffing themselves to White House gates and that sort of thing, going to jail to protest this. Politically, what are the risks that President Obama takes if he goes ahead and approves this?
1: Well, we have to remember that this is a congressional election year and the Democrats stand to lose the Senate. Were he to approve the Keystone Pipeline, the environmental groups will be very angry. But the environmental groups want to protect against a Republican Senate just as much as President Obama does. So I think it's unlikely that environmental groups will withhold political support, financial support for Democratic candidates this November, even if the president approves the Keystone Pipeline. If the president rejects the Keystone Pipeline, he risks uh, some vulnerable members of the Senate in his own party, such as Senator Bagich in, in Alaska, Senator Landrieu in Louisiana. So the way I look at the politics anyway, the president will be better served if he were to approve it this year. He will take a hit from environmentalists, but that hit uh, will be less harmful and painful this year than it would have been, say, perhaps in 2012 when he was running for re-election.
0: Bob McNally is a former presidential advisor and founder of the Rapid End Group. Thanks so much, Bob. Thank you, Steve. For three consecutive years, California has been gripped by severe drought. Governor Jerry Brown recently declared a drought emergency, and restaurants can't even give diners water unless they ask for it. To figure out what's going on, we called Martin Hurling, a research meteorologist at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Welcome to Living on Earth. Pleasure to be here. So just
5: how bad is this California drought? How wide an area is being affected? Well, it's been um, uh, quite dry along the entire Pacific Northwest coast. So basically from Seattle south to San Diego, the drought, which is really in its third year now, is at its worst right now. Um, Last year was, of course, also very severe, but it's been drier this year than last year.
0: Can you give me some examples of places that are particularly uh, affected by this drought?
5: A station, it's sort of a bellwether station for the accumulation of snowpack in the northern Sierras, which is a very important water supply source for Southern California. The station's name is Blue Canyon. It's on Interstate 80 before you ascend to Donner Summit. Beautiful place. Normally, by this time of year, they would have picked up about 30 inches of precipitation. They've had closer to about 5 or 6 inches. So they've gotten into a deep hole that's going to be tough to come out of for the rest of this rainy season. So at this point, what's causing the drought? Well, the immediate cause is that there is a pattern of circulation in the atmosphere, a high pressure, uh, some call it a ridge. It blocks the typical storms that like to move from west to east across the Pacific Ocean. Uh, these storms have not found their way into California this year. Uh, they didn't do that very well last year either, um, except for December. The uh, storms are finding their way into the Pacific Northwest, uh, far northwest, British Columbia. There, there's been landslides of snow, if I can call it avalanches, in Valdez and places along the Alaskan coast. Abundant storms far to the north, but not in California.
0: It always seems like we're hearing about drought out west. How does this year's drought compare to what's been going on in the past?
5: Well, um, drought is no stranger to this area. The drought this year has been severe, very severe, uh, no doubt about it. But the season isn't over yet, so we're a bit premature to sort of log this one into books. There are two consecutive years that stand out in memory that go back only about 35 years that um, most people will remember, 1976-77 winter and 1977-78 winter. Those two back-to-back rainy seasons were the driest consecutive two years on record for the statewide average of California. History has indicated you may be dry for a consecutive string of four or five, maybe even six years, and then suddenly you pop out into a wet regime. The key here is that the time series does not show a trend of precipitation either upwards or downwards over the last 117 years. So cycles, um, fluctuations that are really quite severe from time to time are the norm in the state. And this is probably another one of these natural cycles that come and go.
0: In other words, it's just tough weather.
5: It's just tough weather, (laughs) tough love from nature. And it's also interesting that the the drought situation in the west in California is linked with the very cold conditions in the east. The weather pattern itself is not just a local pattern sitting off the west coast and affecting only California. As that high pressure has been anchored off the west coast, there's been low pressure um, Hudson Bay region that has been diving southward and bringing the very cold air into the northeast. So these patterns have been linked In 1976 and 1977 and 78, those were very cold winters in the U.S. They still rank among the coldest winters on record. And, again, that was a linkage between the cold in the U.S. in those years and the drought in California, and here we are again. It's a weather pattern that comes and goes from time to time, and we're back to a situation we saw about 38 years ago.
0: Uh, When there was a great blizzard in Boston in 78.
5: Oh, that's right. Very good.
0: Marty Hurling is a research meteorologist for NOAA in Boulder, Colorado. Marty, thanks so much. Hey, thank you for having me. Coming up, feeling the California drought at the checkout counter. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The deep drought in California is likely to cut agricultural output this year, and Americans may soon notice, especially in a produce aisle. Ag is a $45 billion-a-year industry in California. And Brad Rippey, an agricultural meteorologist at USDA, says California grows a lot
6: more than you might think. It's a really interesting list. If you look at the top ten, milk is on top, perhaps surprisingly, if you think about all the other crops. But uh, number two is grapes. We have almonds, nursery plants, cattle and calves, and then the second half of the top 10, strawberries, lettuce, walnuts, hay, and tomatoes. And because we have very little snow in the mountains, this is a third year of drought, there are expectations of significant cutbacks in water allocations and supplies for the summer of 2014. Uh, The first of fall will be field crops because that's an annual crop. You can obviously withhold the water and the field would just lie fallow. For some of the more perennial type crops, fruits and nuts, vines and so forth, you have to water those in the summer to keep them alive. So they would receive water, but some of the field crops, those fields are going to lie fallow in the summer coming up.
0: Now, what's the split of water between people use and agriculture in California?
6: As much as 80% of California's water usage is agricultural, and that leaves the other slice of that for a lot of other competing interests, including, of course, municipal water, as well as hydroelectric generation, uh, environmental concerns, and then recreational use, as well as lake and river levels need to be maintained for tourism.
0: So if 80% of the water is used for agriculture, some parts of agriculture use a lot of water. To what extent might California start to rethink its mix of agriculture given the water constraints?
6: Uh, At this point, some of the more water-intensive crops, such as rice, are the obvious ones to be cut back and to move to more either drought-tolerant or lower water-use crops.
0: California has a well-developed system of reservoirs for storing water
6: in times of drought like this. Can you describe that for me a bit? Sure, Uh, water management has certainly improved in California, but looking at the 154 intrastate reservoirs in California, that's a tremendous amount of water. A lot of that comes from the Sierra Nevada. Those reservoirs, back during the drought of the 1970s, dipped to less than 50% of average storage. Now, at the end of 2013, California is sitting in a little bit better position, 70% of average storage. However, it's worth noting that at the beginning of this drought, reservoirs were literally brimming over with about 130% of average storage. So in just over two short years, we've seen that storage drop significantly on the order of 25 to 30% storage per year. And we could easily see reservoir levels dipping to levels that have not been seen since the 1970s.
0: So... Brad, if this drought persists and farmers in California are forced to grow less, what does that mean for the rest of us who, well, you know, we like to eat every day?
6: Honestly, you know, some of these crops, California is the primary source. In some cases, like citrus, we can go to Florida, to a lesser degree, Arizona or Texas. But fortunately, because the overall U.S. economic engine is pretty well buffered against crises such as drought, the chief economist of USDA is indicating that the western drought could have some impact on food prices, particularly fruits and vegetables. But the impact is, at least for 2014, is expected to be relatively small. Just to put it in a little bit of perspective, food inflation for 2013 in the U.S. for all food was only 1.4%. Now looking ahead to 2014, early expectations show food inflation expected to be 25 to 3.5% which is pretty much in the range of historical values since the early 1990s.
0: Brad Rippey is an agricultural meteorologist at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Brad, thanks so much for taking the time with us.
6: Thanks for inviting me to join you.
0: Agriculture, cities, hydroelectricity, tourism, wildlife, there are many competing demands on the scarce water in California. That drought has focused attention on how we should manage our water supply as populations grow and the planet warms. And a very timely book called Water 4.0 has just been published by David Sedlak, a UC Berkeley professor of civil engineering and co-director of the Berkeley Water Center.
4: I wrote this book because I work in the technical aspects of water supply and water treatment, and I would have lots of conversations with people in cities that were contemplating new kinds of water systems. and. I was surprised at how little they understood about this hidden system that delivers their water, treats it to make it safe to drink, and disposes or recycles it after they're done using it.
0: Professor Sedlak writes, over the centuries, there was water 1.0 when Rome built aqueducts and disposed of waste. Water 2.0 saw 19th century Europeans chlorinate and filter drinking water, followed by our present system, water 3.0, that treats sewage as well. But David Sedlak says now is the time to update to Water 4.0.
4: Well, we're all familiar with one of the first tenets of Water 4.0, and that's water conservation. So quietly over the last 10 or 20 years, we've seen indoor plumbing change as people are switching out their top-loading washing machines for front-loading washing machines, and we've saved a lot of water that way. We can do better, and we will do better. The other part of Water 4.0 involves the creation of local sources of water, and the recycling of water. So those local sources of water are things like capturing urban stormwater runoff. We can also build seawater desalination plants, and those desalination plants can be a new local supply of water. And finally, we can start recycling our water, either recycling it close to the home with something like um, gray water, or we can recycle the sewage after it's been treated and put it back into the water supply.
0: We use perfectly good drinkable water in our toilets. How should we change that system going ahead in what you call water 4.0?
4: The reason that we put perfectly good water into our toilets is that it's hard to have two separate types of water coming into the home. So once we built our homes with only one kind of pipe coming into it, and then we got this idea, well, maybe we should put Uh, a second kind of water into a house, a recycled water or water of lower quality, it became very difficult to replumb and rebuild everyone's houses with a second distribution system. And so an alternative would be to find a way to get rid of our waste without using so much water. So the modern flush toilet that many of us have in our homes uses about uh, a gallon and a half per flush. It's possible to reduce that with a vacuum toilet, the kinds of toilets that we're familiar with on airplanes. So you could reduce the amount of water that the toilet uses to a little less than half a liter if you went to a vacuum toilet. The water savings associated with that isn't huge, so it may not be a good economic investment. But over time, we may be able to actually get away from putting drinking water into our toilets.
0: Now, talk to me a little bit about the present drought that is going on in California With your understanding of what we need to do to move forward with water, how can we respond to these drought situations?
4: The drought that we're experiencing in California is the worst drought in many decades, but it's not the only drought. So we've had a drought in the Colorado River Basin since about 1999, and we've recently experienced a pretty severe drought in Texas. I think the drought that is most instructive to us is the drought in Australia that occurred about a decade ago. And that long drought was a cause for major change in the way Australia provided drinking water to people. So the first stage of the drought looks a lot like the first stage of the drought that we see in the western United States. People call for water rationing and voluntary cutbacks in water use, and that gets you through a year or two. But we have to think of something more than just rationing and voluntary cutbacks. We have to start planning for this next generation of water.
0: You talk about local water supplies. As a way to respond to the threat of drought, explain more for me.
4: It's nearly impossible to build a reservoir in the middle of a city. But many cities have a reservoir underneath them. They have the local groundwater supply. So, for example, Los Angeles has some wonderful urban aquifers that serve as a source of water supply for the city. So those urban aquifers are like reservoirs within a city And if we can recycle water and put it back in the ground, we create a local water supply that we can draw upon even during times of drought.
0: What do you make of the social and cultural attitude towards water supply innovations? How prepared are we?
4: If the system remains hidden underground and people just turn on the faucet and don't think about all the effort that goes into getting the water to them, we can't have an intelligent discussion about water supply. And the idea of seeing water as going through a series of revolutions should comfort us a little bit. That is, throughout history, we've had problems with our water supply. They've seemed difficult and intractable. There have been unfamiliar new technologies we've had to adopt. And ultimately, we figure it out. And we become comfortable with having water that's treated or having sewage that's treated or having water that's imported. So a lot of the Discussions that you hear now and the resistance to new sources of water supply should be expected by people who are unfamiliar with where their water comes from and why they need to think about something more than the existing system.
0: So what do you think it'll take for ordinary citizens to realize that a change is needed?
4: There's nothing like a good crisis to bring about change, whether it's a public health crisis and people dying from typhoid fever and cholera whether it's rivers catching on fire and the Great Lakes dying, all of these things prepare the public for the investments and the discussions and the decisions that have to be made about going to a new way of supplying and treating water.
0: By the way, I I hear reports that current drought in California is making the the outlook for wine production uh, a little dimmer, and maybe that will galvanize people into action.
4: Or it might force them to experiment with Argentinian and Australian wines.
0: David Sedlak is author of Water 4.0 The Past, Present, and Future of the World's Most Vital Resource. He teaches at UC Berkeley. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you, Steve. Part of the new thinking about water handling involves the decision by the federal government to restrict how much storm water runs directly off hard surfaces into the waterways. For many cities, it's proving expensive, especially in older communities where culverts are in need of repair. To fix those systems, local governments are starting to charge residents a stormwater utility fee, what some call a rain tax. Julie Grant of the public radio program The Allegheny Front has our story.
7: There's a big hole in the street in the small downtown of Meadville, 40 miles south of Erie. More than 70 years ago, much of the city was built over the top of streams, which are enclosed in concrete tunnels called culverts. Assistant City Manager Andy Walker says last summer when Meadville got hit with a huge rainstorm, one of the major tunnels clogged.
8: Essentially the culvert became nearly completely plugged with sediment and debris rocks, branches, um, some from the storm itself, and frankly, from other probably prior events where we hadn't done proper maintenance.
7: A third of the downtown streets flooded, cars couldn't get through, the water gushed over and under the roads with so much force, iron manhole covers were pushed up more than six feet off the ground. Six months later, Meadville is still recovering. Walker stands by the hole on Market Street. He says the city had to dig up the street to get to the underground tunnel. Then they had to figure out how to remove the branches and rocks that were plugging it up.
8: And this is where we had opened it up to literally drag out the debris. Um, And we had a pulley system and dragging a bucket so that we can get it to this hole and then scoop it out with a traditional backhoe and load it out.
7: The $150,000 price tag may not sound bad, but for a small city like Meadville, it's a significant portion of the budget. Thankfully, Walker says they don't have to spend money from the general fund. Last year, Meadville started charging residents a stormwater utility fee to pay for maintenance and for projects like this. Many call it a rain tax, but Walker doesn't like that term.
8: And in fact, we try not to call it a tax increase because it is really a user fee.
7: Walker says like any other utility, water or sewer, people are billed by how much they use it. In the case of a stormwater fee, property owners are charged based on the footage of impervious surfaces, such as parking lots and rooftops, on their property. He says rainwater runs off of those surfaces and into the public stormwater system.
8: Depending on the size of your parcel, that's your billing unit, that's your impact, that's your usage of the system, and you're billed accordingly then.
7: Last January, the average homeowner started paying a new fee, about $90 per year in Meadville. Cities such as Philadelphia and Mount Lebanon, south of Pittsburgh, have started charging similar fees. More Pittsburgh-area municipalities are expected to start considering a stormwater fee this year. We asked a few residents about it at a drugstore on the East End. Matt Marquette is a lawyer and a homeowner on the East End.
8: I would support any uh, measure that uh, helps develop the infrastructure and limits any sort of pollution that goes into the river waters, which I think are a great local
2: resource.
7: But others we asked don't want a stormwater fee. In the greeting card aisle, Cheryl Fuller stopped to disparage the idea.
1: We don't need another bill. We have enough. As homeowners, gas, light, water, sewage, and now a sewer fee? No. No. It's time to become a renter.
7: (laughs) The state of Maryland recently passed the country's first statewide stormwater fee. It's expected to cost the average homeowner around $175 a year. Taxing rainwater. I know it sounds crazy, but that's exactly what the state of Maryland is doing, creating a flood of outrage. That's Jerry Willis on Fox News. Her guest is a county executive from Maryland, Laura Newman. So essentially the amount of rainwater that is outplaced by my structure, my building, my house, I get taxed for that. Is that the way it works? That's the idea. They're thinking that the amount of impervious surface on your property, meaning your roof, your driveway, your home, uh, will determine the amount of tax that you pay. I'm telling you, that sounds like a ton of dough. I mean, well, I can it. <laughs> Newman says the stormwater fee is expected to raise $14 billion by 2025 in Maryland. It won't raise near that much in Meadville, PA, but it's still a lot of money for some businesses and large property owners to pay. Cliff Willis is director of the physical plant at Hilly Allegheny College. Its stormwater utility bill was $70,000 last year. He says not everyone understands why they're being forced to pay for runoff from their parking lots and rooftops.
2: In any community, particularly a small community, you'll have folks grumbling about additional fees and and having to. Well, we're just going to move outside the, the city limits then.
7: Willis says there is significant development in a nearby township outside Meadville city limits. He says township residents don't pay for police, fire, or stormwater services. But as a former municipal engineer himself, Willis supports the new fee.
2: I've been here for about five and a half years and. On at least two occasions, I've seen water running down Main Street deeper than six inches. So, yes, there certainly is a need for stormwater management.
7: Meadville has already spent some of the money mapping its stormwater lines. And when a sinkhole appeared in one homeowner's backyard because of an old line, the city had the $60,000 it needed to build a new one. Meadville's Andy Walker says even with the money from the fee, they can't fix all the problems. He says when two inches of rain fell in less than two hours last summer, some people wanted the city to clean up water in their homes.
8: You know, we're sort of demanding action now that they're paying the stormwater fee, and I had to explain to them that, you know, of a storm of that size, no matter what we did, you know, we we almost couldn't throw enough money at the problem to fix and prepare for that size event.
7: Pennsylvania already has a lot of rain and snow, and climate scientists predict larger storms in the coming years. Walker says even with the new fee, fixing the overloaded stormwater system is going to take decades.
0: Julie Grant's story is part of the documentary series Think Outside the Pipes, supported by the Park Foundation and Penn State Public Media. Coming up, checking in on the eagles that went to college.
3: That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for the coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Now let's dig beyond the headlines to
0: find out what else is going on in the world. Peter Dykstra joins us in the studio. He's editor of the DailyClimate.org and Environmental Health News. That's EHN.org. Hi, Peter. Hi, Steve. Thanks. So, what you got for us this week?
2: Well, we've seen a lot in the news over the last few years about finding pharmaceuticals in our waterways. That's everything from caffeine to Prozac. And the reason we find them is that sewage treatment plants are designed to treat living things like bacteria. They're not designed to treat the chemicals that we might ingest and then get rid of. Uh, so some scientists have figured out that if you can find legal drugs in sewage, why not trace illegal drugs through sewage? Our EHN reporter, Brian Benkowski, put together some data from about 20 studies on this. My favorite one is a chemistry professor at Puget Sound University in Washington State who studied his own campus's sewage output. Now, wait a second. Pot is legal now in Washington State. But a lot of other things aren't. So here's what Professor Sewage found. There's a huge spike every exam week on campus in amphetamine levels in the sewage. That's probably not a big surprise for a lot of people who are familiar with college. And the technology to detect even tiny traces of chemicals has gotten so much better in in recent years. There have been a lot of studies on illegal drugs traced through sewage in Europe. They found meth, cocaine, heroin, ecstasy. It's in varying amounts, but one of the constants is that it's usually heavier on the weekends.
0: Okay, Peter, what about
2: the right to privacy here? Well, it's only a privacy issue if the technology were good enough, and it isn't, to figure out which home or which individual were donating his or her sewage to science. So what what else do you have? Well, Steve, you have to feel for the poor town of Valdez, Alaska. It's been 25 years. 25 years ago, Valdez became synonymous with one of the most notorious oil spills in history. 25 years before that Valdez was wiped off the face of the earth by an earthquake and tsunami. It was rebuilt up the hill a little farther away and out of danger.
0: Oi, Valdez, huh? So we got the big earthquake in 64, the Exxon Valdez oil spill almost exactly 25 years later in 89. So it's almost 25 years again. What is it this time?
2: Avalanches. Uh, the Richardson Highway, the only way in and out of town, and two weeks starting in late January following absurdly warm temperatures in the 60s. That's right, the 60s in January in Alaska led to two avalanches. They cut off the Richardson Highway, the only road access to Valdez. For two weeks, no cars and trucks in and out of town. But the crisis spawned the obligatory, heartwarming story. It was about a couple who risked everything to get their sick cat to a vet in Valdez. They hiked with the cat over two avalanches.
0: And I'm hoping that this story has a happy ending,
2: Peter. Well, it does have a happy ending, but it had kind of an unhappy middle. Uh, their names are Christina Clark and Donnie Carlson. They got arrested for trying to save their cat by hiking over the avalanches. They locked them up. They even locked the cat up in a shelter. The humans got out. The vet got the cat out. The vet healed the cat. And everybody's doing just fine.
0: But no catastrophe, I guess. So, Peter, what you got for us in the calendar this week?
2: This is one of my favorites. It's Seventy-nine years ago, this week, nineteen thirty-five, source is no less an authority than the New York Times. They helped start the urban myth about alligators thriving in New York City's sewer system. And you know you know what an urban myth is, right?
0: Yeah, it's a mistake.
2: Oof. <laughs> Ooh. Sorry. Well, yeah, an urban myth is something from a city that's not true, and this is definitely not true. The story goes back and it was reported the next day by the Times, but some kids were shoveling snow. In a street in upper Manhattan, they put the snow in a sewer. We're back to the sewers. And they said they spotted a seven-foot alligator living in the sewer where they dumped the snow. They also said they killed the alligator. They cut it up and burned it before anybody got to see it. But somehow this made it into the New York Times the next day, and it's made it into folklore forever. <laughs> yeah,
0: I guess an alligator's mostly tail. So huh, that makes a pretty good yeah, story. there you go. Peter Dykster is the publisher for Environmental Health News and the dailyclimate.org. Thanks for visiting us here in Boston, Peter. Thanks, Steve.
2: It's great to see you.
0: We usually think of having an eagle eye, but in this case, we're going to talk about having an eye on the eagle.
9: That's right.
0: At Berry College in Mount Berry, Georgia, they have a pair of eagles nesting on campus. And because of the event the college has installed an eagle cam to allow people to watch a live stream of this nest, which is located between the parking lot and the entrance of the athletic center. And joining us today uh, to discuss this is Dr. Renee Carlton. She's an associate professor of biology at Berry College. Welcome to Living on Earth, Renee.
9: Well, thank you very much. And uh, thank you for having me talk about my favorite subject, our eagles.
0: So when did you first notice the eagles in the nest?
9: Well, back in 2012, I had a student come and tell me that he had found an eagle nest on campus, and I immediately thought that it was up on our mountain campus. We have a reservoir up there, so I said, well, where around the reservoir is it? And he said, it's not there. It's behind the athletic center. So I went out and uh, located the tree that the nest was in, and uh, within a couple of weeks started seeing the eagles, and it was very obvious that they were building a nest right here on campus.
0: So why did you decide to install a camera?
9: Well, eagles are such iconic birds. Everybody loves watching them. The first year when they were nesting, we would have crowds of people come to watch. And we initially installed a camera that was pointed at the nest tree. But you couldn't really see what was going on inside the nest. So we, uh, with the help of Sony and Georgia Power, installed this nest cam, which actually points down into the nest. So everybody can have the eagle eye view of what's going on.
0: So I have the Eagle Cam up right now. Now, if someone wants to look along with us as we're talking, you can go to berry.edu. That's dot edu slash Eagle Cam. She's sitting on the nest. Do I have that right?
9: That's correct. She's incubating two eggs right now.
0: And, um, oh, this is so cool. I can just see she's looking around and... Her feathers are ruffling just a little bit.
9: It is a little breezy today, so the ruffling of the feathers is because of the breeze.
0: So where's dad? What's he doing?
9: He's probably off hunting. Uh, She stays pretty close to the nest. She's on it almost 24 hours a day. So he'll go off and hunt and bring something back for her.
0: I imagine you have some rather careless squirrels on campus as well.
9: Yes, we do have a lot of squirrels. We have also a very, very large white-tailed deer population, although I don't think the eagles are going to try to tackle one of those guys.
0: Now, you immediately thought this was out of the reservoir. Uh, I mean, how unusual is it for eagles to start camping out right next to where people are are living and working?
9: Well, eagles do prefer to be around water. They are primarily aquatic-type Predators, they like to catch waterfowl and fish. This particular location is really equidistant between the reservoir on the mountain campus. There is a river fairly close by. Also, there's an old rock quarry on campus and a pair of lakes that aren't too far from us. So, really, this to them, I suppose, seemed to be the ideal place to be equidistant between all these hunting grounds.
0: As I understand it, eagles aren't all that common in your part of Georgia. Why is that?
9: Because of DDT, the pesticide, eagles became endangered, and in fact in the 70s there were no nesting eagles recorded in Georgia at all. After the Endangered Species Act and the banning of DDT, the populations were able to rebound. Initially, eagles were found primarily along the coast, but because they've been able to reproduce successfully, the population numbers have increased and eagles have started to move inland to areas that can support them. And our particular area, this region, is very, very diverse in terms of biodiversity. So it really has made a very good place for eagles to come. And in fact, this particular nest is the first one that's documented in our particular county. So it's really a success story.
0: Now, as I understand it, these eagles, well, they're quite good planners.
9: So they'll start tending to the nest in September, come around more and more often in October and November, and then they actually start their breeding activities in December. This particular pair had uh, two eaglets last year. We think the first egg was laid uh, right around Christmas time. And uh, then the eaglets hatched in late January and fledged in April. This year, they're a little bit later. The first egg was laid on January 14th, and the second egg was laid on the 17th. So we're expecting the hatch to occur right around Valentine's Day.
0: Now, tell me what happens. Uh, Hopefully, these eggs will hatch soon. Valentine's Day, you're projecting. What stages will the hatchlings go through that people can see on on the eagle camp?
9: After they hatch, we'll probably only get some very brief glances of them because at first young eaglets don't have the ability to maintain their own body temperature. So they're going to rely on mom to keep them warm and she's going to nestle down right on top of them and keep them comfortable for about a week, 10 days, and then as their feathers start to come out more and they're able to control their body temperatures, both adults will go and find prey items to bring in and feed the eaglets. I think what most people will really enjoy watching is when the parents are feeding the eaglets because they're really very, very careful. You can imagine this big, large bird with the talons in the bill. They will actually fold their talons in uh, to their foot so when they come in for a landing at the nest, they don't accidentally spear one of the eaglets. And then they very carefully will pick off small pieces of meat to feed the babies. So they're really excellent parents, and I think people will really enjoy watching that.
0: Renee, what do you hope that uh, people will gain from from this camera?
9: I think it will give everybody a real insight into what goes on in eagle life, especially how fast they grow and what kind of steps the parents have to do to ensure that the eaglets get enough food in order to survive. And what it's like to be up in a tree that sometimes is swaying quite a bit with the winds, but it's just a, a real unique chance to get to get personal with our national symbol and I think one of the most beautiful birds on earth.
0: Well, Renee, I want to thank you for taking this time today and for looking after these eagles.
9: Well, it's my pleasure to be able to give you some information about them. I hope everybody will check out the cam and get a chance to see the eagles in action and enjoy uh, what almost has become commonplace for us. (laughs)
0: Renee Carlton is an associate professor of biology at Berry College in Mount Berry, Georgia. Thanks so much. Thank you. Back in December, China banned shellfish imports from most of the U.S. West Coast over health concerns, including a high level of arsenic in one sample. The ban has hit folks who harvest the gooey duck especially hard. These giant, long necked clams can live more than 150 years and are a delicacy in China, but in America, not so much. And with the export market on hold, clam diggers are looking for customers closer to home. In Seattle, Ashley Ahern from the public media collaborative Earthfix headed to a popular local restaurant that's promoting the
10: gooey duck. My name is Michael Gifford. We are at How to Cook a Wolf in Seattle, Washington. And what are you doing right now? Cooking gooey duck. Gifford lines up the fist-sized clams on a shelf above the sink. Their necks drape down a foot or so over the edge. A yellowy-brown sheath, maybe an inch or two thick. This is going to get a little raunchy.
2: It's a, it's a very phallic-looking uh, animal. <laughs> so what you do
1: is we bring them in and we let them kind of let them relax a little bit, let them go down and get out to its uh, natural length.
10: <clears throat> natural length for a gooey duck is usually around three the- feet. Gifford drops a clam into a pot of boiling water for a few seconds and then.
5: Into the, ice water.
10: the clam visibly tenses up when Gifford drops it into the ice water. You can see the shriveled skin start to separate from the rigid neck of the clam. Here we are. Almost like a snake when you find a snake skin. You're like, wow, is it really that long? But there you go. The skin of the duck gathers more arsenic than the rest of the clam's body. That's what the Washington Department of Health found when they went back and tested more than 50 clams after the Chinese instituted the ban in early December. The skin of every single clam had amounts of arsenic above China's safe levels. The rest of the clam's body parts, like the neck, the mantle, and the gut ball, were okay except for one sample.
11: First step is always to remove the skin. So we are not. We haven't found any, any recipes or any suggestions that eating the skin is appropriate.
10: Bill Dewey is a spokesman for Taylor Shellfish. They're one of the largest shellfish companies in the country, based here in Washington. He says the company has had more testing done on several different kinds of shellfish it sells. The levels of metals are all very low, and some of them are naturally occurring, but they're there.
11: You will see arsenic and cadmium and selenium, all sorts of different metals, you know, some good for you, some not good for you, in all your shellfish.
10: The Department of Health rigorously tests shellfish for biotoxins and bacteria, but it doesn't regularly test for metals. Past tests from the DOH have shown metals in shellfish at levels below public health concerns. But as with all things, it's a question of how much shellfish you eat, and some Indian tribes and Asian immigrant communities eat considerably more shellfish than the rest of the population. Michael Gifford slices delicate strips of gooey duck flesh off the neck of the clam. Now he's chopping up Fresno chilies and celery. Finely mince. Then he smears a green stripe of avocado puree across the plate. Gifford arranges the gooey duck in pearly ruffles atop the avocado green and sprinkles some olive oil. A little bit of lemon. We use uh, fleur de sel, very nice sea salt, and then we we'll get to eating. So. For your first one,
1: <laughs> for your first time. Oh gosh! Okay.
10: <laughs> Gifford hands me a forkful of gooey duck.
1: Wow! Like clams on the half shell.
10: Mhm.
6: It's, it's the texture.
2: It's tender, but there's chew to it.
10: Yeah, it's not. I was kind of expecting rubbery looking at mm-hmm. them from the outside. It's a lot um more subtle.
2: It's it, it's not full of
1: brine, but but you're getting that salt water. You're you're getting the ocean.
10: Gifford remembers his first experience with gooey duck. He had it at a sushi restaurant soon after he moved to Seattle from New Jersey. It was a great introduction. I was like, "Wow, I've never seen this before. It was it, it's it's really unique. We're very fortunate here to have this product. But people didn't always feel this way about gooey ducks," says Bill Dewey.
11: Yeah, in the 50s, you'd probably be hard-pressed to find gooey duck on a menu. You know, maybe on the head canal, uh, you know, in some of the you know, in the Gooey Duck Cavern or something like that. But uh, in Seattle restaurants, probably not too
10: much. Dewey says Taylor Shellfish has been actively promoting Gooey Duck to restaurants around the Northwest. There are now close to 20 restaurants in Seattle with Gooey Duck on the menu. But the domestic market isn't making up for the industry's losses abroad. Gooey Duck can sell for close to $100 per pound in China. Seattle restaurants pay around $20 per pound. And as the ban drags on, Dewey says Taylor Shellfish and others have had to make some tough cuts.
11: I mean, we did our best through the holidays to keep people employed, shifting them to other jobs and or, uh, doing maintenance work on the farms and so on. But ultimately, it's gone on long enough that we've had to lay some people off here a couple weeks ago.
10: Taylor laid off 14 people and estimates its losses at upwards of a million dollars. Gooey harvesters with the Suquamish and other tribes are slowly getting back to work, selling clams to other Asian countries. The Department of Natural Resources is out close to a million dollars in revenue from gui duck harvested in state waters. Dewey says he's optimistic that China might lift the ban soon, but the federal government said there is no time frame for that, and they have not had an official response from China. For now, gui duck may still be a tough sell for Northwest foodies, but if more chefs like Michael Gifford have their way with this quirky clam, the future might look a little more delicious. I'm Ashley Ahern in Seattle.
0: on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Naomi Ehrenberg, Larissa Baker, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Catalina Pier schmidt Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, Jennifer Marquis, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lierish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth and we tweet from at
3: Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by A Friend of the Nation, where you can read such environmental writers as Wen Stevenson, Bill McKibben, Mark Hertzgard and others at thenation.com. This is PRI, Public Radio International.
7: PRI, Public Radio International.